The bigger question here is, can you support the man you're with or the partner that you're with? This is true for you know all kinds of relationships, but in your case, can you support the man you're with with embodiment without teaching him? And that's a tough one because there's a few, and, and as you were saying, there's a few different layers to that. Now, the most general layer is that if you're in a relationship that's polarized in the way that you tend to want to relax in, into kind of um, the, you know, the erotic play of you being the one being taken and he being the one taking, not all the time, but some of the time at least, or predominantly, right? That sets up a specific dynamic that um, plays into the rest of the relationship. And it doesn't have to play into every aspect of the relationship, you know, meaning in, in a long-term relationship there will be uh, areas where one person is much better than the other and should take charge, regardless what your sexual preferences are. But in a new relationship like yours, and where you're feeling your way into who does what and what's the sexual dynamic, in general, the person who um, teaches is the person who leads the kind of the, the occasion. With that, could also happen in the sexual realm. Right? So um, it's not an ideal setup, and it's much easier the other way around that the person who uh, whose sexual preferences is to guide can also teach, of course, right? passive or active. So that's the biggest picture there, and you know that, of course. Now, as a subcategory to that, um, there is the passive teaching by encouraging certain things. Right? And the way you're doing that already is you talk about your experience, and you can probably also touch his body or, or be with his body in a way that fosters more embodiment. That's uh, the best case scenario that you can do that. Um, within that, though, there is the, um, the piece that pretty much anybody who wants to be with a man has to consider, and that is uh, that the engagement with the head, like let's say in psychotherapy or so, requires a disengagement from the body. It just does. Right? There's only so much available. And when you sit across from somebody and you work with them, you have to park your body in a certain way and let all that energy go into the connecting with that person and making mental notes and tracking things and all of that. So before you even consider going into the realms that you would like to go, uh, there is the bringing him back into the body. And that you can do without teaching, by touching him um, you know, in, in, in sensual and sexual ways, by doing things with him that require that he enters his body, going to the park, laying there, rolling around while he's telling you things, working out together, moving together, um, you massaging his feet while he's telling you about stuff. You know, all of those things you can actually do. And certainly when you notice, oh, we're in our head, meaning he's in his head, and then you can always go to the body right then and there. Then the other thing, of course, you can do is when it's notable that he is in his body, 
to positively respond to that, you know, markedly positively respond to that, so that without you saying anything, there's a connection made between, oh, I did this, and she was so much more excited, or I did this, and she jumped my bones, or you know, I did this, and she didn't complain, or whatever the thing would be, so that... Um, in his mind, that makes sense, and then it's his versus you having told him. No. Well, it's always dopamine. Ah, yeah. yeah. Right? Yes. Meaning, meaning any time you have that thing that happens when you meet somebody and you're attracted to them, the brain and the body respond, and they have a very specific way of responding, right? And that's by neurotransmitters being released in the system. And so when neurotransmitters get released in the system, as we all know, right, uh, and this is also true for, horm for female hormones and all of those kind of things, um, we are essentially somewhat run by that information because that's how a human body functions, mm -hmm. right, for good and, and, and for bad. And so um, any time you have that thing, that, that thing will happen, right? And the more extreme, of course, the more um, overtaken by that response are you. So the only way to differentiate is in the medium and long term. And so to that point, how do you make that determination? Well, there's a few ways to go. So first one is um, noting patterns from previous relationships that you do not want to repeat, right? That's fairly clear cut. You go, huh, I'm doing this again, or I'm feeling like this again, or I'm standing in front. Nowadays, of course, you have it all much better because all of us have it much better because in the olden days when I dated, <laughs> you had to wait in front of your landline, you know. <laughs> now, of course, you can just go upon, you know, your business and, and you have a cell phone on you. But, you know, when you have those kind of behaviors and when you start behaving in ways that you recognize from previous relational patterns that you do not want to repeat. So a few examples of that, for instance, are neglecting your uh, normal activities, neglecting your social circle and social responsibilities, um, hyper-attention to some part of you that you usually don't pay that much attention to. So maybe you get obsessed with your hair or you're constantly waxing or you know stuff like that. And, and it, it becomes this whole thing about those are some signs that you're probably in some territories where you don't want to end up. So that's one way. The other thing is when you are continuing to date this person and um, you're not sure if you're totally gaga for no reason or if this is really the way to go, you can ask some of the people who you trust. Right? This, I, and this is a, there's a big caveat. Not everybody who's your friend is going to want you to be happy. Right? We know that. But there should be at least you know, a handful of people who are tried and true friends who have given you actual feedback. Right? If you're the kind of person who um, you know, uh, fosters that. And 
And we all have those people where we go, wow, you've actually been really happy and you look really good and um, it looks like you're incredibly productive and, you know, this guy is really good for you. Well, that, that should be a hint. But if you go, what do you think of him? And everybody's like, gosh, it's really windy out, right? It might not have the, the fortitude to tell you straight up, but they'll let you know. And that's also something to consider with people who've known you for, for a longer period of time. If they're like, oh, God, here we go again. Right? Then, yeah. So th that's, a, that's a way to go. And then internally with your body, of course, when the, you, know, you have the first flush and all of that, um, what you want to track is when you leave this person, are you repleted or depleted? Sorry, yeah. So that's a good thing, right? If, you, if this is also a more long-term thing, um, but if you if you leave interactions energized and happy, and then the rest of your day and your life feels really good, and you know it's not filled with some drama because now you're waiting for the next spike because he's not going to call for three days or whatever. If it if it is a is a repletion of your system, that's great. So proceed. You feel drained, don't. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Let me tell you a story about an astrologer as a as a as a, a warning. I used to. Every year for my birthday, for since I was maybe 21, I get a, a reading from a Vedic astrologer, and um, and also you know they do all the thing with the timing and all of the you know that right. So you can de determine best times for stuff, and I've always done that. And um, my previous uh, teaching partner and I were in the middle of um, getting funded for a huge online project. And so we went to the uh, Vedic astrologer and we got the timing, you know, and everything and, you know, all the stuff that one does. And um, the day before or two days before the uh, business was being funded with a million dollars, my uh, previous teaching partner died in a tragic accident. So that's a different story. We don't have to go there yet. I'm just saying to you that when it all had somewhat died down and, you know, I could think straight again. I went like, hmm, I'm going to ask the Vedic astrologer about that day, right, without telling him what had actually happened. So I'm calling up the hotshot, you know, Hollywood, whatever, Vedic astrologer. Everybody in Hollywood has the rings and the this and the, you know, like the, the stones and the whatever. And I'm like, so what? And, oh, we, because we also once had our charts done for business compatibility and all of that, right? So, so I said, so what exactly happened on June 4th? Oh, well, it looked like a fine day, nothing special. And so this was the last time I ever um, consulted an astrologer because supposedly you're supposed to see those things, right? At least uh, something. Yeah. And uh, he saw nothing in James's chart or in the business chart or in my chart connected to that chart. And that's not to say that it's not a good thing, but you can't bank on stuff that isn't um, 
quantifiable. And what I mean by that is we could say that perhaps James was ready to go and it was the right thing. And from a karmic standpoint, um, you know, his transition was so smooth that it didn't cause a ripple in his chart. Right? We can say that. That might very well be true. But that can also be said about a guy who is an axe murderer, that he somehow karmically contributes something to your life that in the cosmic pattern of your you know, 80,000 rebirths uh, is not even a blip. But in your current life, it's a little bit more than a blip. Right? So hence, I wouldn't bank on the astrologer. It's always nice because we always want some kind of affirmation outside of ourselves, but I think the idea is always to get so good on your internal navigation that you can tell without a doubt, right? That's the game, at least that I play, is how much distinction can I create in my own body so that I make good decisions. Nobody knows, right? We all have, you know, you can have all kinds of spiritual or otherwise ideas. We don't know. But the thing that we do know, right, just through research and common sense, is that before human beings became this complicated, a lot of the um, communication was nonverbal and uh, also long distance. And so, for instance, in wolves, right, this is highly... Uh, research because there's lots of research done on wolf packs. Right? Wolf packs can communicate with each other without hearing each other over many miles apart. And they have built-in navigation systems and communication systems that go from pack to pack to pack. Well, how is that possible? Well, the same way that humans can uh, feel other humans across continents. It's definitely possible, and it's not... Um, something you can necessarily prove, you know, but even though there have been, for instance, research done um, on the morphogenic field, which is this whole Rupert Sheldrake in, in England did this research on can dogs tell when their owners come home and by when can they tell and things like that. So there's some research done, but it's fairly self-explanatory that that would be the case. And I think how it goes when you're really tuned in with someone for dopamine or other reasons, right, is that a lot of your attention and awareness goes towards that person. And so while you are always picking up other people's stuff and they pick up your stuff, whom you focus on determines what you can read, right? Because you could read anything in the field, so to speak, right? If we assume there is a field, you could read anything in the field. And sometimes, right, when we're a little bit more sensitive, like you've just done nonlinear or something, you can walk by somebody and you pick something up. Mm. Well, that's because you're sensitive and you're tuned to this field. The same way, of course, when you're in love or, or really in, excited about somebody, you can feel them a lot more because your radar, you know, it's like a yeah. receptor dish is, is turned towards that person. And so then we call that, of course, synchronicity because we want to believe in the magic of our connection and all of those things. And there's, it, there's nothing wrong with it. It's very beautiful when we are attuned with someone else. But you could be as attuned with this bird as you are with somebody across the, the, the world. 
simply by turning your receptors towing towards that and making yourself sensitive to that particular experience. There is nothing quite like finding somebody with whom you can you know, connect on those levels. Yeah. There's nothing wrong with that. It's, it's beautiful and wonderful and um, definitely to be pursued if appropriate. And, and that's why I was saying magic. There is a certain element of magic in human connection and in why we meet certain people and when and how. I mean, there, you know, we don't know. It, it, it has a very beautiful magical quality and you might as well enjoy that. Yeah. You know, there's nothing wrong with that, but why certain things happen is as, you know, um, magical as the other things, but you could explain them in certain ways if it helps you fine-tune. And then, you know, and like you said, when you get into that flow, then, of course, that flow creates more of that and more of that and becomes a very positive loop. The same can, of course, happen negatively, right, which we've all experienced as well. Yeah. So there's whole other layers of existence in the realm of, you know, shamanism and, and magic and, and, you know, whatever you want to call it, transmission and this and that, that we're not so clued in if we don't give it enough time. Well, it could go either way, right? Your brain says no, your body says no. Your brain says yes, your body says no. Your body says yes, your brain says no. The answer to any of those is no, right? Because you don't ever want to override a no in your own system. Because when you do that, you are discounting or, or negating your warning systems. Now, it actually doesn't matter why it's a no. So it might be a no, like you said, because you have previous conditionings. It might be a no because this person reminds you of your uncle. Uh, it might be a no because you have prejudice. Uh, it might be a no um, because there's a social difference in, you know, let's say, income or whatever. It doesn't matter. If it's a no, it's a no. And when you go, well, I hear your no, mind or body or both, but fuck you, I'm going to not listen to you anyway, you eventually dull yourself to the messages of your body and mind. And once you've dulled yourself to the messages of body and mind and you've overridden them, you are no longer having a reliable navigation system. And once you no longer have a reliable navigation system, then you really can't tell anymore what's what. So you have to just assume if there's a no, there's a no for a reason, and some part of you doesn't want to engage, and that has to stick. Yes, well, we're talking about um, romantic relationships, of course, right? We're not talking about business or things like that. In business, of course, other rules apply where sometimes you have to override certain likes and dislikes because one must function, right? That's not, I'm talking about the yeses and nos in your body as it pertains to being intimate with somebody, right? And so, um, <laughs> oh God, shall I give the inconvenient truth or yeah. the yes. hopeful um, no. utopian thing? <laughs> 
truth is very few people will be good for you. That's the truth, right? Of all the people out there that are available, and nowadays, of course, you can flip through them like in a candy store. You swipe right, you swipe left. It's like, you know, it's like Amazon for dating or something like that. Um, they don't do reviews yet, right? <laughs> that, that will come soon. There'll be reviews. You'll scan, a, you'll scan a date and you can get all the reviews for people. That would be useful or not. Yeah. Um, so, so the reviews would be based on um, biometrics, not on... Uh, Vindictiveness, yes. <laughs> so, but so meaning, you will have a massive um, offer of potential romantic partners, and to very few of those romantic partners will your body say yes. And the reason for that is probably because very few of them are actually suitable for you, which kind of sucks because. You, like you said, you want a little bit more of the candy store. Now, the same way it is with a candy store, if you go into a candy store, there's probably very few offerings that are actually good for your body, right? But we override that all the time, <laughs> you know? And then we have a sugar rush, or we gain 80 pounds, or whatever, right? So, so the same is true for your dating experience where, of course, as you're dating, you will have a little bit of that where you're overriding your things in order to see um, if you are just, you know, stuck up or if it's real, right? But as that happens, that actually gives you more distinction. And so there's nothing wrong with going, okay, well, I want to start dating, which I'm assuming you're asking about, right? Okay, so now I need to start dating. So now I need to say yes to a lot of people even though I don't feel it. Well, that's okay as long as you don't have sex with them, right? Because that's, that's, a, that's a whole other layer of entry there. But on a coffee date, right, and go, eh, I'm not feeling it, but I'm going to have tea with the guy. But to go, I'm not feeling it, I'm going to have sex with the guy, is not all right, right? So you could um, go and experience a lot of people and refine your yes and no's. And then you could go, well, actually, I'm, the reason I don't want any of these guys is I do have unrealistic standards. So for instance, only men who are, I don't know, two meters 20 and uh, looking like, um, what's his name, Jason Momoa will do. Mm -hmm. Yeah! gonna have to lower your standards right um, but if if it's more like a, this guy doesn't feel right to me and I went there anyway and then I realized why he didn't feel right then that's a discrimination in your body that you want to keep for the next person so you know the un, the unfortunate truth is very few people are actually suited to you how do you find that out well you go places and you explore things and you really, really fine-tune your early warning detection system. And then you have to just live with the fact that there is probably only a handful of those hundred potentials that are actually a possibility for a functioning engagement. And then you'll deal with that.
Well, it is a holy grail question, right? And there's no, there, there's many answers, and there's no answer other than your personal exploration. What sort of meditation did you try to address that problem as you see it? And do, do you still do that? That sort of meditation, like the counting meditation, they call it sometimes shamatha meditation. It's a specific kind of meditation designed to tame the monkey mind, yeah. right? Or discipline the mind, or create calmness. Quietening of the thoughts does tend to occur. Unfortunately, shamatha meditation is just like going to the gym, meaning that you lose your gains if you don't keep on top of that kind of meditation, and really rather quickly. There are, you know, different sorts of meditations do different things, and there are some insights that you can gain from thinking about reality or contemplating things that don't need need constant upkeep. But shamatha meditation certainly is like contemplative fitness. You need to keep doing it in order for it to keep working. Um, Contemplative fitness, TM, that's a good one. That's not my phrase. I think that's Kenneth Folk. Oh, okay. It's very good. Yeah. So on that note, right, there's a few things to consider um, that might give you a bit of an insight into what happens or why. Energy is essentially um, emitted on the cortex of the brain, right? The cortex of our brain produces electricity, actually. If you've ever seen The Matrix, right? they refer to people still plugged into the system as copper tops, right? batteries, because we do produce electrical uh, energy. The electrical energy goes and does things to fu- make the body function, makes you think, and you know, all of those kind of things. The human beings have a maximum output, not like computers where you can upgrade the RAM. And it's 44 megahertz per second, give or take, right? So what that means is every second you have 44 megahertz to run the entire thing, including thought. Mm. And what that means is that in order to function, the body or body-mind system has to distribute energy where it's needed most. <coughs> So if you are thinking or doing things that are very mental, all the energy goes there while your body goes somewhat offline. There's always the upkeep of the vital functions of the body. But there isn't a lot of energizing happening here because it's up here. When you do things that require a lot of energy here, it pulls the energy down from your thinking mind into the body. So that's one theory that you can work with. And in women particularly, energy distribution is a big issue because we are built to have a lot of energy in this part of the body because that's where menstruation and ovulation and pregnancy and birth and pleasure and also power happens, right? And and it's that that the kind of ongoing output of energy that you know all about when you have a child, right? You can't do the uh, spurt of hunting, kill the thing, eat it, sleep for three days, right? Then do it again. You can't do that because you have to constantly keep your energy up. So for that, you need a lot here. If you tend to be heady for whatever reasons, right? Disposition, upbringing, patterning, Functional, dysfunctional, doesn't matter. If you tend to be heady, you are constantly pulling away from your lower body resource. And heady activity begets more heady activity. There's a certain kind of addiction 
you know, addiction, I'm saying this in, the, in, in a totally casual, non-clinical way, right? To that thing, it begets more and more and more and more because that's just how that particular loop runs. It's brain patterning. So um, you have a few options how to interrupt that, one of which is to really work a lot with your body, particularly your lower body, so you can reliably interrupt thought patterns or thought loops, I should say, into uh, bringing the energy into the lower body. So there's loads and loads and loads of exercises around that, nonlinear being one of them, um, lower body engagement of all kinds. It has to be nonlinear, though. If you just do some yoga or some Pilates, it's, it's just putting it on another grid, right? It has to be so it disrupts the patterns. Um, and there's many ways to do that. Hip circles, squats, you know, so you name it. So you bring the energy down. That's one, one way you can do it. Another way you can do it, um, and this is something that I find extremely helpful, um, is I do what, uh, I don't know who calls it that, Shinzen? Yeah, so Shinzen Yang calls it the do-nothing meditation, mm -hmm. where you just sit, yeah. right? You, you just sit, and it, it, for me personally, because I have a very active mind with a million things to do, for me personally, uh, do-nothing is way more useful than uh, counting my breath or focusing on something or whatever, if I'm in a mental state, because uh, if I just sit long enough, which is probably not what you can do right now, it will run itself dry. You know? um, and I find that very useful. I also do that in nonlinear. I let my mind run itself out. Right? And sometimes I have to do that with the help of a notepad, where as I do nonlinear, I have to write things down as they pop up. So I outsource. So I offload from my brain, so to speak. Because one of the things that might also happen, not in the pleasure thing, but in your normal life, is if you are not um, good with lists and tasks, your brain becomes the, the, the yeah, the, you know, milk. Five minutes later, you still haven't written it down. Milk. Five minutes later, milk, right? <laughs> and so you, you have like, it's like the alarm that goes off on your phone and you snooze it. That's your brain, right? Your brain has 80,000 things on snooze. And so the, the discipline of writing it down is very useful. Yeah. Um, so if you want to do meditation, I'd do something like do nothing. But ideally, I think you need to have reliable ways to get the energy from your head into your body. And then the third thing, and this is a discipline, is that when you're in a situation like you're here, where you have a moment of enjoyment and then your head pops in with all its dramatic complications, you have the discipline to bring your attention back to sensation over and over and over. And that requires practice where you can and how you do that is you bring your attention to where your body's being touched tonight, for instance, right? Oh, what am I going to do in my new apartment? Knee is being touched. Oh, I, well, why am I thinking of things if I should enjoy myself? Oh, thigh is being touched, right? So you constantly redirect um, towards the area of somatic impact. And over time, your 
conditioning will allow for that to happen more and more. And then you have greater sensual awareness. And that, of course, means you're, you're not just in your head. You're noticing things in your body. And then your body becomes more aligned and so on and so on and so on. So that's, those are kind of three strategies. Yes, to be is lists, right? If you're a hot mess of, of uh, chaos and confusion, <laughs> then you're going to have an active mind. Yeah. Like overactive mind, yeah. you know, compulsive thinking. Is that, that is to be, right? To A is do nothing meditation, to or, or non-linear, to B, get your shit together in the list domain at least, mm -hmm. right? You might not be able to get your life together all the way, but um, the very basics of proper organization outside of your brain will make a huge difference to compulsive thinking. Well, there is, of course, indications when not to do it, one of which is um, heart problems, uh, uh, problems with blood clotting, or um, uh, high blood pressure, right? Those are clear, yeah, hypertension, are clear counterindications to Wim Hof or anything of that nature, right? Because when you pressurize your system, you pressurize your system, and it's the cardiovascular system we're talking about. So... Um, from that viewpoint alone, uh, you have to kind of consider, is it something to do? It totally depends on the system. For some people who have a very healthy system, uh, things that stress the adrenals produce a healthy stress response that strengthens the body. Like intermittent fasting, cold plunges, you know, those kind of things. Um, great. Your adrenal's not so good, you're really fucking yourself up potentially for life, right? And so the one-size-fits-all approach of, oh, let us just all jump into cold water and breathe like a motherfucker <laughs> is, um, you know, is, is questionable. And mind you, you know we've done Wim Hof and, and all of that. You look at somebody like Laird Hamilton, who is probably a better representation of the best possible scenario of those practices. This is a guy who's practiced long breath holds for a long time because he's a big wave surfer and if he doesn't have long breath holds, he dies, right? And um, he's a big wave surfer and he does uh, ice baths for certain things. So, and when you look at him and his body and the way he eats and all of that, he's in pretty optimal condition for his age and what he does. Um, when you actually listen to him, he rests for five, six, seven hours a day, like by you know meditation, uh, controlled, slow, smoothing things, being out in the water in a very... Now, if you don't have that kind of time to rest that much, right, where you also, when you do those kind of protocols, supposed to sleep after each meal and, you know, all of that, you probably should be mindful at least, you know, of what happens in your nervous system and is the adrenal stress, uh, in, you know, counter-indicative or indicative in, in that particular way. Now, one thing that we do know is that that kind of breathing, the Wim Hof breathing, is there to hyper-oxygenate you so you can do a breath hold. But that's the whole idea. In the beginning, you do them and then you count how long you can hold your breath. Remember that um, Steve and I discovered Wim Hof long before Wim Hof became a 
big deal because Steve found them somewhere. We were in Berlin about to teach a workshop and we looked at the, the you know, this was the early training and stuff like that. And we sat in this freezing cold apartment in Berlin, uh, you know, uh, with a stopwatch doing breath holds and then, uh, you know, uh, timed each other under the cold shower and stuff like that. And it was fun. But it was a lot of fun, but um, that kind of breath is, is really not good if you have to uh, function in a smooth nervous system way, because it jacks you up like crazy. If you don't mind being jacked up like crazy, go for it. Right? But you and I will have to look at long-term effects per person. It's not a, and the only way that you'll do it is you'll do it every day. You notice, are you getting more fried or less fried? Are you, um, uh, you know, more functioning when it comes to stressful emotional situations or less? And that's how you measure it over over long time. Right? You also probably know that these breath holes are not indicated when you're in cold water. Right? You need to do them beforehand because you can pass out. Even Wim Hof says you shouldn't be doing those breathing in water because when you hyper-oxygenate to the point where you black out, you can die, right? So, yeah, that as a final warning. <laughs> yeah, but there's no one-size-fits-all. <laughs>